God speaks to us in his word in Jude, verses 1 through 4. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Caitlin. Morning. Everybody doing good? Doing okay? All right, real quick before we jump into Jude, we're going to do something together. Uh, We have um, multiple families in our church that live uh, out in Seminole, uh, own businesses out there. We have a community group that meets out there. You guys have watched the news. Seminole was, uh, especially downtown, was pretty decimated by a tornado this past week. So before we jump into this, uh, we're going to pray for the city of Seminole. We have, uh, we've been talking with some people that live out there and trying to figure out how best our church can serve that community. The reality is this, a lot of us have done tornado relief before, any sort of relief in Oklahoma. There's just a mass of people that come in right away and then they all leave in about a week. Well, that's when the real work really starts is about a week. So um, what, what we want to do is we just want to keep paying attention, uh, be on the lookout for how we can serve that town. And um, so we will let you guys know. We'll keep you informed in the coming days of just what we're thinking. And um, man, maybe they won't even need us. Maybe it'll just get done really quickly. But the thing that they do need without a doubt is the presence of God. So I'm gonna ask you to extend a hand. We're gonna be praying this way because that is the way of Seminole. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure. And so uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna be praying this way. And so join me. Let's extend a hand. Let's pray for that town real quick. God, we do pray for Seminole. Lord, you, you, um, you have a way of taking really terrible things and then causing them to work together for our good and bringing beauty out of ashes. And so we just pray, Lord, that um, one, that you would protect those people, that you would restore them, that you would renew a town, but also that there would be, that people would just look to you, maybe that haven't looked to you in a long time and that it would kind of shake them um, loose of some things that they've held on to, and the fear would drive them to talk about you, God, and and um, and 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 pray to you. So we do pray for Seminole, Lord. Pray that you restore the town, keep them safe, bring peace in that town. In Jesus' name, Amen, Amen. All right, the book of Jude. The book of Jude. This book is not a hype book. It's not one of the ones that you talk about in Sunday school at whatever church you went to. Don't nobody talk about Jude. Jude is actually probably the most, most would agree actually, that is uh, one of, if not the most neglected books in the Bible. It's very short, it's 25 verses. We're starting this week, a four week process to walk through one of the strangest books of the Bible that I personally have ever read in my entire life. It's gonna be weird. There's some weird things in Jude, um, but, and we're gonna navigate through those, but I think by and large, I want you to hear me say this time and time again, there is maybe not a more appropriate thing for us to preach and learn as a church in 2022 than what is in this book. It is very, 
timely. I'm gonna give you today kind of a flyby, an overview of what Jude is, how it was written, who it was written to, and who wrote it as well, and kind of what the major theme. And man, it is fitting for us, for Frontline Church, but not just our church, every church, but particularly what I feel and sense in this particular church, I think it's a very prophetic book for us. So let's start from the top. Jude is a letter written to a group of people, but not a specific group of people. It was written to all the saints, all those who are beloved, called, and kept by God. That's every Christian. So it's not written to a specific church. It's not written to a specific person. Sometimes books of the Bible, most of the time, especially in the New Testament, were letters written to churches, okay? Which first and foremost lets us know that it's not okay for us to think of ourselves as Christians if we think of ourselves as Christians without a church. That doesn't mix. The entire Bible points to the fact that you need to be in a church. Letters written to churches, Ephesians, Philippians, on and on. The Gospel of Mark is what we just got out of. Mark was written to a specific group of people, a body of believers in a church that gathered together. They were under persecution by the Romans. They were Roman first century Christians. Well, Jude is very different. Jude would have been read in a church, no doubt, but in a sense that no one can pinpoint exactly who it was written to. Although it was delivered to someone and what would have happened was many churches would have gotten this letter from Jude and they would have gathered around and they would have read the letter from Jude. That's kind of what we're doing today. God, the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible through these men. And we're gonna be studying it just like they would today. It's a short letter. Um, letters were the way of communicating back then. No cell phones, no text messages. They were the way of communicating until the telephone got invented. There's a story about uh, an old, uh, long, long, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago when letters were the primary way of communicating. I read this old story about this man that needed to inform someone how to get to his house because there was someone that had planned on coming to his house for dinner that night. So just think about how crazy this is. In his mind, he goes, they don't know how to get to my house. I should pick up my phone and text them directions or do what I do and just tell them to Google it. Well, there's no cell phones. So what he had to do, and they're on their way, they're about to leave to come to his house, they had nowhere to go, they didn't know where to go. He had to write in a letter directions to his house, very detailed, turn right at this statue, and then exactly 35 steps, turn left, down some steps, and then you'll see two trees, one tree on the right, one tree on the left. Take a right at that point. I mean, very detailed instructions. That day, he finds someone that's going in the general direction of this person who's already coming over for dinner, gives them a letter. The messenger takes it to them. It's an urgent letter. And that is the only way that person would have known how to get to his house. Now, that doesn't sound too crazy, but when you put it in context of today, that sounds crazy. Letters communicated something. And Jude, in the same way, is a roadmap for us. Now, the Bible is not written 
as instructions for you how to live. That's not why it's written. We might have grown up thinking that. We might have even been told that, that this is a rule book for your life. It's not. It's not. This book is about Jesus. That's what it's about. But within that, how to follow Jesus, Jude is going to tell us how we follow Jesus. And it's going to serve as a warning for us today. This is an urgent letter. It's a strange letter. There's some context that we're going to have to walk through together over the next several weeks. I'm going to try to give you today to set it up. It is urgent. As a matter of fact, Jude even tells us that he planned on writing something else, but the need was too urgent. There's something happening for Jude. He's hearing something. He's seeing something. There's something that requires a different letter. It requires attention. And he writes it with urgency. Here's some context of Jude. All the note takers in the room are gonna love this sermon and you're welcome. Context of Jude, if you take notes. Jude is first and foremost, he is assuming an understanding of his audience of Jewish history in his readers. These people would have read and at least known about some extra biblical Jewish writings written before and after and right around Jesus' time. Jude has some content that'll be extremely weird to us, but not to the readers. And they'll be misinterpreted by people who try to make the Bible a science fiction novel. He talks about things like the archangel Michael fighting with the devil over Moses' body. He also talks about angels rebelling and taking advantage of women, angels. Jude also talks about Jesus' judgment on a group of people, how he acts as judge even in their death. If you remember Mark, we talked about the destruction of the temple. Jude is short, very short, 25 verses. I wanna invite all of us starting today to read this book, even every day, at least part of it, over the next four weeks as a church. It seems strange, it's gonna sound strange, but it's absolutely necessary for 2022. And it's appropriate for the people in this room today. It'll serve as conviction for some. It'll be a dividing sword for some. But it'll be a warning, no doubt, for all of us. And will give us an immense amount of hope of our faith in Jesus. So who was Jude? Jude was a man whose name translated in Hebrew means Judah, or Judas. Now, first century Christian, post Jesus' death and resurrection, if your name was Judas, you'd probably say, you could just go on ahead and call me Jude. I don't wanna mess around with the name Judas. He identifies himself as the brother of James. It's interesting, the brother of James. History would have told us in 90% of scholars would believe without a doubt that Jude, in fact, was the brother of James, who was, in fact, the brother of Jesus, the blood brother of Jesus, meaning Jude himself was a blood brother of Jesus. Well, why does that matter? Here's how it matters. And this is one of, if not the primary theme, or one of the primary themes of Jude. 
And it comes in verse one, right out of the gate. The blood brother of Jesus introduces himself this way. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. A servant of Jesus Christ. Notice that Jude does not identify himself as the brother of Jesus. He identifies himself as a servant. Why does that matter? For those of you that have brothers in the room, maybe you love your brother, maybe you have a good relationship with your brother. I have a brother, older brother, who I love a lot. And um, I even like him. <laughs> we like each other. We grew up, we were, we, were, we were buddies. He's just enough older than me and just enough different from me than where we didn't kill each other growing up. And, but we did fight, you know, brothers do. I love my brother. I have a great relationship with him. And if he listens to this, his name is Brad. Brad, this is just, you know, this is the truth what I'm about to tell you. But there ain't no way in the world ever in my life I would call myself a servant of my brother Brad. <laughs> and you wouldn't either. Unless he was your boss or something, I don't know. But you still are like, I'm not calling myself your servant. Have you lost your mind? Jude's not here to treat Jesus as his brother. He's not here for you to treat Jesus as just your brother, although he is, but that's not the point. Jesus is not just another dude. Jesus is more than Jude's brother. He is his master. Jesus' family had an interesting relationship with him while he was living on earth. His blood relatives, Jew, James, mother, remember in Mark, he goes back to his hometown. There's a crowd following him. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's delivering people. And his blood family says this about Jesus. They say, he is an insane man. He's insane. And then the religious leaders who you would think, man, surely those dudes are, they got Jesus back. They come along and they say something worse. They say he works for the devil. And then that's when we get Jesus saying, a prophet is not without honor except with his family and his friends in his hometown. Blood family of Jesus said he was crazy, worked for the devil while he was on earth. And then after Jesus died and was resurrected and proved his resurrection, guess what? They go from saying that Jesus is insane to saying that he's the Lord of all creation. Jesus' resurrection changes Jude. He becomes a servant. That's what he is. That's what he primarily wants to be known as. That is his identifying marker in his life is not Jesus is my friend, not Jesus is my brother, Jesus is my master. We need that today. You need it and I need it. This is preaching to you and me. We are so much more comfortable with Jesus as long as he's just my homie. As long as he's just a friend, as long as he stays in his lane, as long as he tells me what I want to hear, not what I need to hear, we love us some Jesus. But as soon as Jesus makes a demand on our life, as soon as the Bible tells us something about our sexuality, as soon as Jesus says, in order to gain life, you have to lose your life first. If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself. As soon as he says that, we're out. 
And here's the reality is the Jesus that's not master is just a God that we've created in our image. It's idolatry. We're worshiping a false God. Jesus is Lord. Jude comes right out of the gate and tells us, he is my master. It's one of the major themes of this book. Jesus is more than just your friend. He's your master. Uh, David Helm is a guy that I've read a lot. I'm going to quote him a lot throughout this process. And, um, and he says this, the people closest to Jesus are happy to call themselves servants. Jude, close to Jesus, family, happy to call themselves servants. People closest to Jesus. It just makes me think that if you struggle with the concept of Jesus as Lord, then maybe you're not really that close to him. Authority of Jesus over our lives is a major theme of Jude, like we said. Again, Helm in Sharing Christ's Sufferings, page 286 says this, our propensity to play the real, to answer to no one, to throw off any and all vestiges of authority is perhaps why right out of the gate, Jude identifies himself as Jesus' servant. He is modeling Christian maturity for every reader, strikingly by the third word in the English text. That he does so with such matter-of-fact joy ought to be encouraging. Never think it wrong or demeaning to identify yourself as one under authority. There is great sweetness in living by God's design. One of the major themes is submitting to Christ with joy, with joy. Who is the letter written to? Again, not necessarily a specific church or a specific person, but essentially Jude writes it to all the Christians. And that goes for us today. I love this because it's every Christian then and it works for every Christian who had gone before or who has gone before us and for every Christian now and for every Christian who ever will come. There are things in Jude that should never be ignored, will always be true of the church, things that we have to war against. It's a letter written by the Holy Spirit through Jude and it's very urgent. It's an urgent warning. It could not delay. So let's jump into verse one. It says this, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Called, beloved, and kept. Quite simply this, to those who are called, meaning chosen, set apart. God initiates. You are not looking for him. You are looking away from him. God turns you about face and makes you look at him. Those who are called beloved, those who he has set his love on. There's nothing that can change the way that God sees you. Do you understand that? You are beloved. You don't have to work for that. There's nothing you can do to get it. You just are beloved, not because of how great you are, but because of how great God is. He is love and you are beloved. He has set his loving kindness on you forever. God knows everything about you. Think about this. I want you to take a little quick inventory on yourself. Just think about yourself, all the things that you love and hate. And how great a person do you consider yourself to be? 
I mean, the truth is told. We just don't, we all feel like phonies. I wish we had the confidence to go, I'm pretty awesome. But the more you go along, the more mistakes you make, the more you realize, man, I'm not that great. God knows all of that about you more than you know it about yourself. And there's a million other things that you don't even know about yourself that God knows about you. And he chooses to set his love on actual you, not ideal you. You are beloved. And then one of my favorites is it says that we are kept. Kept. It's a covenant relationship, but it's a covenant that he holds. You know what covenant means? It means the only way it can be broken is if the person who holds the covenant breaks it. We don't hold the covenant. It'd be broken every day. (laughs) Already this morning, 20 times. God holds the covenant. It can't be broken. It's not up to us. You are kept. However, what this means for us is that we work because God is at work. We work to do the keeping with God. You will be kept, but you work to do the keeping. Do you understand what I'm saying? It doesn't mean all of a sudden we just go fishing or whatever. (laughs) No offense to people who love fishing is great. Doesn't mean that all of a sudden we just sit on the couch and don't do any work. That would be opposed to the Bible. And it would actually be a mark of us not being kept by God. Philippians 2 says it this way. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation. What an interesting thing to think about salvation. Work it out. Work out your salvation. How? With fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I love this. You work out your salvation. You do it with fear and trembling. You do the work of the keeping. How do we do that? Because God is at work in you. God is at work, therefore we work. Jude actually drives this point home in verse 21. He says that you are kept, but in verse 21 he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. God's at work and we work. We work because God is at work. Do you see what I'm saying? Uh, This is a strange thing for us in America in 2022 to, to get. It's the mystery of how God works in us. It, it is not okay nor right, and it's a bad sign of your relationship with Jesus if you just think like you should just go on sinning. That's not real. But God is at work in you. The sign of his work in you to change your heart is that you push back against sin. You fight against it. So the questions are this. I mean, are you struggling today to follow Jesus? Do you, is that you? Are you struggling to follow Jesus? Go to Jesus. Are you struggling today to believe in God? Go to the author and perfecter of our faith. Go to God. Do you need help today? Well, there is a helper. It's God the Holy Spirit. Go to God the Holy Spirit. He's at work and we work. The big theme of Jude is this, contend for the faith, contend for the faith. Jude 1.3 says, beloved, 
although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, (laughs) I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I love this. I was eager to write to you about something that would have been really fun to talk about. Common salvation. That sounds like a blast. A dust for me. And I love that Jude actually gives me as a pastor a little bit of relief here because he basically acknowledges the thing that I feel a lot. It's like, man, I had one plan, but that had to change because something chaotic happened in the church and I've got to address it. Anybody else who's worked in ministry ever in your life, been an elder, been a leader, whatever, you will have understood. And not just in ministry, but in the world. You make a plan, the plan's gonna be great. This is the plan that's finally gonna make everything perfect in the world. And then something happens, you're like, my goodness, maybe one day we'll get to that, but I've got 12 other plans to make because it's all chaos right now and we gotta address some things and it's urgent. It's urgent. I love, that's what's happening with Jude. I had a plan to write about our common salvation. However, I found it necessary. It's not something that I changed my desires on. It's not like all of a sudden I wanted to do something different. There is a need. We have to address the need. I found it necessary to write appealing to you in the church, you frontline church, appealing to you to do something that you do not do. And that is this, contend for the faith. Contend. Don't just sit idly by. You have to fight for the faith. Not the one that you make up, but the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Contend for the faith once for all delivered. Delivered. Not on its way. It has been delivered, this faith. Put a stamp on it. There is a faith. It cannot change. It is final. Not new faith, not new ideas, not a reimagined Jesus that will fit better into my lifestyle or into the cultural claims of 2022. The faith once for all delivered. Contend, he says, for that. The word contend, kind of loosely translated, but represents the word agonize. Contend, agonize. It's what an athlete would do. It's what an athlete does when they're trying to finish the race and they've got a broken leg or they've got pain or whatever it is. They agonize to fight for this thing. Agonize for the faith, he says. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot of Bible Belt America's version of the faith. That's not something that we put on our walls. We don't have the word agonize anywhere on any coffee mugs or bumper stickers or whatever. We don't even have the word contend anywhere. We do have the word faith. It's interesting to think about your faith as something more than just a word. It's not just a word. Words without definition have no depth at all. We don't even know what we're saying. I see that phrase a lot. Keep the faith. Have faith. 
You ever see that somewhere? And please, no offense, if you have that in your house, look, I, I'm really not trying to offend you at this moment, but I just wanna point out something on a cultural level. What, what Jude is talking about is not precious moments faith. Faith in what? Keep the faith in what? Have faith for what? For who? For We get just close enough in Oklahoma, we get just close enough to the truth without ever stepping over a line of offense. And then we don't have any beliefs. We just believe in something called faith. Jude says that's dangerous. You have to agonize for the faith. Fight, he says. So what is the faith? The best way we can sum it up, the way the church has summed it up for a long time is through a creed called the Apostles' Creed. Here is the faith. This is what we fight for. This is not the Bible. This is just a statement that comes out of the Bible that sums up our beliefs. Let's say it together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the one holy church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Actual beliefs that have been held down for years and passed down. One of the ways that we push back the darkness of the devil. That's faith. It's more than just a statement. It's things that we believe. And we fight for that. It's also this. Faith is final here. It's not open for debate. It's not open for suggestion. It's contend for the faith. Helm 297 says this, we are not free to change it as if the faith were somehow still evolving and making its way around the world. According to Jude, the faith is not only full, but it already exists in final form. It is not subject to change. We see it throughout the New Testament, this fighting for the faith. And Romans 1 talks about the obedience of faith, obeying Faith requires that from us. James 2, faith without works is dead. 1 Peter 1 says, talks about the tested genuineness of our faith. And then Paul says it very clearly in, in Ephesians 4. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Gentiles meaning those who are not Christians. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To do this, 
to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and then to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Contend, contend, agonize, fight, put off your old self, put on your new self by the renewing of your mind. Why is there a need to contend? Why so much word about agonizing over the faith once delivered for all the saints? What is happening in this church in Jude or in the church in Jude and also what's happening in this room today? This is what is happening here and happened there. For certain people, verse four, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. We need to pay attention because it says certain people have crept in unnoticed. These are people that are a part of the church. They went through membership class. They maybe led some groups. They were all in. They're insiders, not outsiders. This is not directed to those outside the church. It is in the church. They look the part. They act the part. Jesus warns us about them in Matthew when he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. We have this idea about false prophet is someone who's standing on the corner in downtown Shawnee, and is preaching some crazy doctrine. But what Jude would say is, no, false prophets creep in and nobody sees it coming. It's the false prophecy that we preach to ourselves, And then in turn, we poison the water of the gospel to other people. We poison it ourselves first. That goes for all of us. This isn't about just some random person who's dressed up like a sheep, but we know secretly as a wolf. Thank God that those people are exposed. They do come into the church, but by God's grace, I think we're able to see them. This is for you and me. This is creeping in unnoticed. This belief, these lies, they creep into our heart unnoticed. What are the identifiers? Two things. One, perverting the grace of God into sensuality. Perverting the grace of God. To pervert means to change or alter. Instead of God's grace leading them to change into the image of God, they are changing his grace to give them a license to sin. Cheap grace tells you that you can do whatever you want and it's going to be just fine. That is an an improper and wrong understanding of the grace of God. Actual grace on our life gives us a new kind of liberty. It gives us a freedom to serve Jesus and to fight for our faith. What shall we say then, Romans 6? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
perverting the grace of God into sensuality. Sensuality is lives marked by sex, marked by pleasure, marked by greed, and ultimately by self-absorption. This is in you and me. Do you understand what I'm saying? Perverting God's grace to say, my money is mine. My life is mine. Nobody tells me what to do with my life. That's perversion. That's claiming Jesus when it makes you feel better or makes you look better. That's claiming the grace of God, but not actually submitting to God. That's perversion. Cheap grace. They're perverting the grace of God into sensuality. And then the second thing is denying God's authority. These two things go hand in hand, don't they? The first is denying God's authority, really. That's where it starts. That's the backbone. I don't have to follow him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He hasn't lived my life. God is not the God of me. Just be there on Sundays whenever I want to go to church. Whenever my life is a mess and somebody's about to die, if you'll be available for that. But other than that, don't mess with me, God. Perverting God's grace, denying his authority, denying his authority means that we pervert his grace. The start of this, the start of the perversion, the start of denying God's authority is like what we started this sermon with, is to see Jesus as only my brother and only my homie. To not see him as master. I want to remind you about Jude's intro. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. When we come to Jesus halfway, we don't come to him at all. We've made a false God in our own image. We would shout the phrase, save me, but don't change me. Be my friend, but not my master. Perversion of the grace of God and faith once delivered. Jude's telling us, he's telling you, and please, let's do it together. He's telling me, I'm preaching to myself, I promise you, fight, agonize, contend for the faith. There are threats within you and within us. There are threats to the faith. You must contend. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Take every thought captive. You have to fight Agonize, and it is agony for the faith. Jude's going to help us. It's going to reveal a lot to us. It's going to help us to see past our nose, give us clear insight into following Jesus. And there's one thing that you have to remember and I have to remember throughout this whole process. How do we do it? How do we contend? How do we agonize? How do we fight? Does that mean I just kind of like grit my teeth and then try harder to not be as sinful? No way. No way. That's what we started this out. Do you lack faith? Go to the author of faith. Do you lack belief? Go to the one who puts belief in us. Are you struggling to follow Jesus? Go to Jesus. Do you need help? Go to the helper. And Jude is gonna tell us, contend for the faith, and then he's gonna end this short little letter with this phrase from 124 through 25. 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. How do we keep from stumbling? How do we contend for the faith? It's this. There is one who can keep you from stumbling. We have to go to him. That's the prayer of Jude. That's the prayer for us today. We need God to follow God. So we're gonna go to him in the table today. Let's stand together.